Some of you maybe didn't uh, grow up like I did in a, in a church like this, a uh, Baptist church and that is connected to the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but the way that it works is there's 45, 46,000 Southern Baptist churches all over the nation um, in every state. And we all support over 4,500 international missionaries all around the world. And we do that by, by giving. And we all give to this one big fund that supports them. And so they don't have to come home and raise support from church to church to church to church. And the reason that I say that is that when you give your REACH offering every Sunday, you, uh, you are giving uh, to support those missionaries. And if you haven't uh, added some extra for Lagoon, uh, we give extra every January and December this time of year. I encourage you to do so. You just put it right in there with your REACH offering every Sunday. Uh, you give that and it will help support those missionaries because we want to keep them on the field. Is there need around the world? There is. We want to keep them out there. And it is important that all of us, every single one of us, be a part of that generosity and that giving. And so thank you so much because I know many, many of you do. Well, take your Bibles. Let's turn to Mark chapter 1 this morning. We're going to look at the second gospel and its perspective of Jesus. And we're going to see that in the gospel of Mark, it is fleshed out for us just in an amazing way how Jesus fulfills that title, Mighty God, Mighty God. And we need a Savior who is mighty. If he is not mighty, if he is not powerful to save, if he can't accomplish the task, I mean, just think of things we need. Our bodies are breaking down. Our souls are lost. Our world is spinning out of control. We need someone who's mighty, don't we? And he is mighty, a mighty God. Well, let's pray as we get ready to, to move into this word. Father, thank you for giving us for giving us four unbelievable portraits of your son, Jesus, that we can see his beauty, a mosaic of stories and parables and commands and miracles. I pray that every single one of us have responded to the gospels already with belief and faith and trust that followers. But I pray, God, that if there are some here this morning that are thinking about that, are just challenged in their heart, they, they are thinking about following Christ or don't know Christ, I pray they'll just see him unveiled in the gospel this morning and respond to their lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I tell you, talking about uh, important people and needing to be uh, good at your job, I'm not sure I'd ever want to be uh, the uh, UF football coach. How about you? I mean, you talk about a challenge. Or let's just say this, any SEC football coach, what a position of challenge. You know, you could come in, coach, and I don't know this new coach. Some of you may know Coach Mullins, who's been hired and coming in, and you know him to be a wonderful person and got great chemistry with teammates and, and his players. And I think he may have a great family. He might even be I don't know all of this. Some of you know all of this. But here's what I know about SEC football. It gets right down to it. It doesn't matter how good he is, <laughs> a person. It really does. Now, I'm, I know it matters. But what is the main concern? Will he win? Because if you're an SEC football coach, go a few years, and you aren't winning more than you're losing, 
you're looking for another job, right? That's just, that's just the way it is. Because all of these colleges that are built, kind of have these great football programs, they're looking for someone who can make sure you are winners, that you're on the winning side and losing records are inexcusable. And so you, you want somebody to come who can accomplish the job of winning. And so I know they went through a search and all those things, and they're looking for somebody that has character and has great chemistry and good fan. I know they're looking for quality people. But I, it went in, in football, the bottom line for college football is can they win? Well, I say that to say this. The four Gospels were divinely orchestrated by God, by the Holy Spirit, to declare unequivocally that Jesus did win. He is winning, and he will always win. That he never, there are no, there are no losses in the loss column of Jesus. If you are looking for someone to deal with what's really important in your life, the things that are going to eternally matter, he's someone who is mighty, who is a mighty God, someone who can get the job done. Now, the gospel of Mark is the most active of the gospels. And you see Jesus just accomplishing tasks after task. He's, he's shown to be a servant in this gospel, but he's shown to be a powerful, authoritative uh, uh, servant. And let me just tell you one of the key words in the gospel of Mark. It is the word immediately. Immediately. Say that with me. I want you to remember that about, God, about Mark because this would appeal to some of you who are uh, high D's and driven people and, and you just like to get things done quickly. This word immediately appeals to those of us who are parents. How many of you love it when you have to tell your kids something eight times? I was told growing up, you know, that uh, if it's not uh, uh, immediate uh, obedience, it's disobedience. Is that, is that how that goes? Basically. Um, and so Jesus, when he says something, when he makes a command, there is immediate, immediate obedience in the gospel of Mark. He's, the Mark was a great, it was a great gospel. All the gospels were for all the people, but it was a great gospel for the Romans. In fact, they believe that this is Peter's uh, recollections of Jesus. This is Peter's gospel through uh, Mark, who was one of his disciples, one of his followers, uh, uh, to us. And, and Peter uh, would have, uh, and this would have had a great appeal to the Romans. You know, Matthew sort of had a, um, a Jewish appeal. Uh, it talked a lot about the fulfillment of prophecy. The others did too, but Matthew just really, really had this bent towards Judaism. John, and we'll get to that next week, really has sort of flavor that's more Greek in its orientation because it uses a lot of philosophical terms like logos and light and all these things that are different from the other three gospels. And the reason is God is, is taking four snapshots of Jesus so that, so that I think everybody on planet earth can see aspects of Jesus that really speak to them. The Romans would have loved the gospel of Mark because the Romans were put together people. They were structured. They had centurions and emperors. They had a, 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 a highly regulated government system and they responded to authority. Well, guess what we see in the book of Mark? Mark, the authority 
of a mighty God. We see Jesus in all of his power and all of his ability from chapter one. All, in fact, there's no, there's no need to do all the, the, the birth narratives in the book of Mark. There's not, there's not Mary singing her song like you see in Luke. There's not interact with the angels in Matthew. Mark just gets right to the point. Here he is, the Messiah here. Now watch him work. He is mighty to save. Gets to the end 15 chapters later and says, all right, will you believe? Let's just get to the point. If this won't convince you, nothing will. Nothing will. Will you place your faith in this man? He's applying for the job, and here is his resume. And you and I need a winner. Can I just tell you, humanity has a losing record since the Garden of Eden. Physically, we're losing. I don't know about you. I don't know why I pointed to my body. We're all losing. We're growing old. We get diseases. We die. Every single one of us. Morally, we struggle. Across the planet, we sin against God, rebel. We sin against one another morally. The, the amount of moral filth that is invading our culture is hard to comprehend. We're on a huge losing streak morally. Would you agree with me? We need a winner. We need someone mighty who can deal with our moral losses, our physical losses. We are going to die and, and, and stay in that grave. We need someone. You know, Jesus comes and says, I've got, I've got the ability to raise you from the dead. What? Yeah, I can overcome physical death. I have the ability to transform your mind and your heart, to give you the ability to have morality and ethics. We're on a losing streak politically. We can look through history. Empires rise, and then what do they do? Rise and fall, rise and fall. We struggle. So we need someone that with the government upon his shoulders. And that's exactly what Isaiah 9, 6 says. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonder Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's going to be on his shoulders. Now here's, here's it. Uh, at Christmas, who is this child in the me? And we will call his name these incredible things, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And so I'm just stepping up here out of the book of Mark today to say, here's what Mark says, is, here's what the gospel says, is I'm going to show you how he was mighty. Let's look at how he was mighty. There's incredible evidence to the might and power and authority of Jesus. Listen, if he cannot have authority over his disciples, if he cannot have authority over disease, if he cannot have authority over death in his personal life, why in the world should we trust him as our Savior? Because those are our problems. So we need to see if he can handle the problems he says he can handle. Can he win? Well, let's look at the evidence. In chapter 1, verse 7, we see that Jesus has the authority and the might of heaven itself. The very throne of Jesus. The prophet endorses Jesus. John the Baptist. Look at verse 7. And John was preaching, and he was saying, 
to all the people in Jerusalem. He was the forerunner. After me comes one mightier of whose sandals I am not worthy to sit down. A big statement when you understand that Jesus, John the Baptist, when he was a prophet, and he comes and says, listen, I'm a great prophet. Oh, he wasn't saying that, but he's, he was a great prophet, and I speak for God. But when I see him, the Lamb of God, the one who is coming, he is far mightier than I. I shouldn't even tie his shoes. Here's why, verse 8. I can baptize you in water all day long. I can dunk you and I can symbolically clean you up, but he alone can fix what's inside. He can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee. And read Mark from beginning to end in one sitting. It is quite an experience. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, what's the next word? Immediately. He saw the heavens being torn open. God's got something to say. The heavens are torn open. The spirit is like a dove and God. This grew up with humble beginnings. Went around to the Decapolis and those towns just as a mason and a carpenter. You have the authentication, the reference of God himself. You are my son in whom I am well pleased. If you have God the Father and the Holy Spirit on the reference section, do you really need any others? <laughs> God said, this is the winner. This is, this is him. He's got heavenly authority. He also has authority and might in the physical realm. All the Gospels do this, but Mark really piles it up quickly. He just kind of gives you a day in the life of Jesus, and he just puts one miracle in front of you after another, but he's saying something through these miracles to you. First of all, it's, it's kind of miraculous how he influences men. He walks down the beach. Look at verse 16. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he's walking down the beach. He sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were men, and he knew these guys. He had met them before. Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will lift their nest and follow him. You see his influence and holds it upon them. But then you see the cure of the diseases. One after another, he cures diseases. Look at verse 30 in that same chapter. One of the first one that's mentioned is Peter or Simon. He was called Simon, and then Simon Peter uh, mentions his mother-in-law being healed. Is there any, it's kind of interesting that that's one of the first miracles, isn't it? Peter's reflect, he's kind of reflecting on things and he'll never forget that day. They had been at church that morning in the synagogue. And as soon as they got out of the synagogue, they said, listen, Peter's mother is sick. His mother-in-law is sick with a fever. And uh, so they go to the house and immediately... Jesus uh, heals her. Look at verse 31. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up, and the fever left her. Anybody had the flu yet so far? There? Oh, you're sitting by people. Good. That's kind of, we get fevers and flus, and we go to the doctor, we take some antibiotics. Most of us are not going to die from a fever. Lots of people back then died from a fever. They didn't know what was causing it. This was not just having a fever like you and I did. This was impending potential death. 
And Jesus went into her. He took her by the hand, lifted her up. And as he's just lifting her up, the fears just go away. But here's what's amazing. Got no the fear. Do you get back to work? The miraculous in this is as soon as the fever left her, she started cooking a big spread for her, for them. She went right to work. She was as good as new. Watch that. As you read the Gospels, watch how when Jesus heals, he heals completely. Completely. And she just starts serving them. There's a lesson in that. Listen, when you know Jesus, when Jesus lifts you up, when Jesus saves you, he's calling you into his service. His service. Look at verse 40. I'm just giving you evidence that he has power in the natural, physical realm. There's no more frightening disease in their day. They kept the bells. grown up in church. They would wear bells so that you knew the lepers were around. The last thing you wanted was a leper near you, much less touching you. But look, Jesus has no fear. A leper came to him in verse 40, imploring him, kneeling, uh, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand. Have to do this. Why did he do that? I mean, he could have just spoken, looking from a distance, but he laid his hand. Leprous, I choose to do this, Bill. And I want everybody to see that I have power over the most frightening disease of our day i'm going to touch my hand to it and you're going to watch it disappear there's a whole there's lots of stuff i could talk about here i just don't have time to do it but you just need to see this mosaic of jesus so that you'll trust him and believe him he's not afraid of disease disease answers to him and immediately, immediately, there's that word again, verse 42. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Pretty amazing stuff. Let me show you some amazing. Look at disease in that day to another set of stories that I want to I settle in on just for a minute and show you a couple of things. He had power over nature power over nature, not just our biological, physical bodies, but the world of itself, the wind and nature. He had power. They answer to him. Verse 37, you probably remember this story. He had been teaching and they decided to get into a boat and, and go across the lake. He said, guys, we just need to get away from the crowds. They said, where do you want to go? And he said, I want us to go over there to the land of the Gerasenes. They're like, why do you want to go there? That's really not a great place for Jews like us to go hang out. That's kind of a Gentile stronghold. There's not our kind over there. It, wouldn't it be more relaxing over there? He said, no, that's this is where we're going to go. We're going to go across the lake. And on the way, this storm came in. And you know the story. This mighty storm comes in. There's waves. It's about to sink the boat. Does anybody know where Jesus is during this incredible storm? It says he's asleep. He's asleep on a cushion. I even like to add uh, on a cushion. Just see him on one of those beanbag chairs that we have, you know. And he's in there just asleep, and the water's coming in, and, and all of this is just communicating to the disciples and to us today. Uh, the storms don't worry Jesus. He worries the storms. They're scared of him. And so he is asleep on the cushion, and they go in and they wake him. Teacher, 
I mean, why don't you, don't you care about us? We're going to die. And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still, and the wind ceased, and there was great calm. If you look at that phrase, the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Um, you ever been on a lake first thing in the morning when there's not even a ripple? That's great calm. Have you ever been in a situation where the wind ceases? If you go out on the Sea of Galilee, it's, a, it's an amazing place. It's an amazing place, and it just became still. And they got to see that all of that was the response to the voice, authority, and power of Jesus. And the Gospels are telling us, church, trust him. He is mighty. He is mighty to save. You say, well, why then? Why then won't he heal my cancer? Why does he let my child suffer? Why doesn't he fix all the political problems? If he's so mighty, why do we, why do we struggle the way we do? Let me just kind of lead you towards the answer and then the, the second part of this. Until we have some amount of pain or suffering, we don't realize we've got a problem. And when do you go to the doctor? When you're feeling great? Not normally. When you have some pain and suffering. Pain and suffering opens us up to the need we have for God. That's one reason. But then also, biblically, all sin, all disease and suffering can be linked back to sin. Sin entered the garden and it just started a destructive force across our world. You and I are decaying because ultimately of sin and a lot of the suffering that happens in this world is directly attributed to human sin and selfishness and all sorts of things. And I think we know that. And so here we have to be very, very careful to look at God and demand that he remove all suffering. Because if he were to do that, you don't realize what you're asking maybe. If he were to remove all suffering, he would have to remove all sin. And if he removes all sin, he removes all of us. Then who would be around to enjoy the lack of suffering? No one. Because we've got a bigger problem than our suffering, than the storms, the leprosy, the hunger. We got much, much bigger issues than that. And let's look at the third realm. And this is where our problems really lie. We need a Savior who is mighty in the spiritual realm because that's ultimately our problem. That's our ultimate problem. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians. He says this, and you, this is all of us, Ephesians 2.1, this is how we were before Christ. We were dead 
in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Did you hear that? We're apart from, we are shackled and we're not even walking on our, under our own influence. We're being driven by our own desires, by the prince of darkness rather than the prince of peace. And look at what it says in the next verse. Verse three, it says, among whom... Among all of the dead, spiritually dead, we all, that's our big problem. All of us, once in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the the body and the mind, nature, children of wrath like mankind. And so uses these miraculous uh, healings and all these things. He had pity. He, He loved people. He wanted them not to hurt. But he used it all to point to our biggest problem in the spiritual realm. Now, The Gospels clearly point to Jesus' authority over the demonic, the spiritual realm, the spiritual issues. Two things that we see in the Gospel of Mark, we see in all the Gospels, and, and, and folks, you just need to have this locked in. We see him do two things that are miraculous. He absolutely bosses the demons around. In fact, they accused him of being their boss. They responded to him so well. He had complete authority over the demonic. And second of all, he claimed and forgave people of their sin. Only God could do that. He could forgive you of your sin. He had authority in the spiritual realm. Let's watch this work. In chapter 5, final, final story, just laying out the evidence, but you need to see this. This is a great, great story. I won't tell you, uh, I won't read all of it. Let me just set it up. So they're fighting through this storm. Jesus calms the storm. About the time the storm calms, here they are. They're flowing up in this, this calm lake, and they're flowing into the port, and they hear some screaming. They hear a haunting scream. Like it was out of the depths of hell itself. And here he comes. They couldn't even keep this demoniac chained up anymore. He'd grown increasingly possessed, increasingly violent, increasingly self-destructive. He was mutilating himself. He would break every chains. He was living among the, the carcasses and the, and the bones in the tombs up in the caves and the hills. And that was fine with the townspeople. You just stay up there. We don't want you around us. He was alone except he was filled with a legion of demons. Here's my my belief is that that storm was an effort of the evil one. The storm just that night was an effort to sink Jesus before he ever got to that shore. Jesus calmed the storm, just rebuked the wind, calmed the waves. And then he looks at a legion of demons and he says, get out, get out. And they do. They do. Look at verse 10. Let's start there in chapter 5 just to see the end of the story. 
that was begging, but it was the voice of demoni- the demons. He had to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they saying, send us to the pigs. Let us them. Gave them what? Permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered, bring about 2,000, run the steep bank into the sea and in the sea. And there's a collective gasp. This was early uh, being gospel, a collective gasp. 2,000 pigs is a lot of pigs. They belong to somebody. They belong to somebody, and sure enough, they did. As he was, uh, the herdsman fled went back to the city and the country would have been full of Gentiles. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, saw the demon-possessed man. They saw Jesus. They saw the demon-possessed man in his right mind. The one who had the legion, they saw him sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man. Uh, possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg Jesus to do what please leave around here we lost a lot of money because of you they were afraid but I love this final section look at how the demoniac responds now in his right mind it says in verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat to go back, the man who had been possessed with demons begged Jesus that he might be with him. And he did not permit, permit him, but he said this, all of us who've been unshackled and saved by Jesus, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis all of these big Roman cities that dotted the landscape of Israel. He would go around all is a man who has a man who, who can tell the demons who is a winner. He can change your life. Have you met him? Have you met that Jesus? Man, I have. I don't have one of those really cool testimonies personal testimonies but it's still a testimony there was a time in my life where I was not my own I was of the evil one without Christ I was shackled in sin shackled in spiritual death headed for judgment there was a time But Jesus set me free. Jesus spoke life into me. And I ought to have the same kind of response to Jesus today that that demoniac has. Let me go with you. And he says, listen, I have saved you to send you. You're my follower, but I want you to go and make an impact on everybody you possibly know. Everybody in your family. All of your friends. And that message is the same today. Can I tell you this? That's the evidence. But what's, what matters, what matters, church, is not just the evidence of who Jesus is, of his might. It is your response. And we've seen lots of responses. We've seen the demons who simply flee. 
And you can't really see demons nowadays, but boy, you can see people flee Jesus. And fleeing for the same reason, the, the demonic and demons flee Jesus. Here's why you would flee Jesus is because they did not want the, uh, the constriction. See, what Jesus had the authority to do, but he didn't do was put them into the abyss and where they would have been chained up and held. They would have had no freedom to do what uh, they wanted to do here on planet Earth. And so he's saying, please, they're begging him, give us our freedom. A lot of people are resisting and fleeing from Jesus because they're demanding their own personal freedom. They want to do what they want to do when they want to do it. And maybe you're in that boat. And you're resisting Jesus. Maybe you're fighting against Jesus the way those townspeople were. Those townspeople were, were resisting Jesus' presence in their town. And, and you can run into that today. And, and you may even find yourself resisting that because, listen, when Jesus comes into your life, things do change. The status quo does change. And things that you idolize must fall. And we're not, a lot of us, maybe you have some pig farmers in here, but all of us have our pigs. We have our idols. We have those things that are precious to us that sometimes they have become idolatrous to us and those need to fall for Jesus to have his rightful place of authority in our lives. And so sometimes people will resist Jesus like that rich young ruler. I mean, the rich young ruler said, yeah, we love you, Jesus. I love you. You're doing great. Uh, how can I know for sure that I'm, that I'm, I'm right? I mean, I, as far as I know, I've got all the commandments right. He was not resisting Jesus. But as soon as Jesus said, listen, you've got some pigs. It's that wealth and until you can let go of that I can't have the rightful place in your life and then it says that that man walked away in sorrow fighting God and money fighting it but then the third response we've seen throughout is there are people that just followed him. They followed him. Like that demoniac, like those disciples. And like the, one of the final people in the book of Mark. You know, I mentioned that uh, the book of Mark has sort of a, a Roman feel to it. All this immediate obedience, all this authority all of this conquering and all of these Gentiles responding. Well, look at chapter 15. Jesus has just breathed his last on the cross. And here's the response that all the Gospels and the Gospel of Mark is looking for from you today. A Roman centurion looks at the cross looks at Jesus, saw the way he breathed his last and said, truly this man was a son of God. That Roman soldier couldn't have seen Jesus in a more broken condition, and yet he said that. This Roman centurion would have respected strength. 
would have respected victory and power. Why would he look at someone he himself had just crucified and say, surely he's the son of God? I'm telling you, they could see it. They saw that he was in control of his own death. He laid down his life. No one took it from him. That Roman saw his authority even in his death. You know what this all says to us? Listen, if the demoniac, if Jesus can save a demoniac who's been living in the tombs cutting himself, if he can save the very man who ordered and oversaw the crucifixion of the Son of God, if he can save that centurion, nobody in this room is outside of his ability to save. Jesus is mighty, mighty to save.